Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. I'm Jocelyn Mesa Miranda. It's Friday, August 5th. There's been a lot of momentum over the past few years to prohibit or limit transgender people from playing sports. Sports are often divided by gender. Women are girls on one team, men or boys on another. Trans people not only face barriers to joining the team that matches their gender, but also there aren't many options for people that aren't one of the binary genders. This year, the Firecracker 5K in Fort Collins decided to do things differently. They offered participants the option to sign up as male, female, or non-binary. I spoke with Firecracker's 5K's first non-binary winner, Steph Campbell. Steph, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. It sounds like a pretty uncomfortable situation when you just want to run a race and you're being asked to identify as male or female. I mean, yes and no. I personally kind of identify as agender, so it doesn't necessarily bother me. For me, the way I experience gender is I kind of don't or don't want to. <laughs> I, I say like my gender is like having a lot of pockets or being the uh, designated bug wrangler in my household, you know, like nothing that's specifically tied to femininity or masculinity. I just feel like me. And so uh, for me, the more things I get to participate in where I get to opt out of gender being any part of it, the happier I am. But when I did have a non-binary option, it was super exciting to be like, oh, someone has recognized that I exist and has given me an opportunity. So then tell me about the race itself. How did it go? I mean, first of all, I was showing up to represent the Fort Collins Running Club. I was in my singlet. You know, we took a team picture. We were all really excited. But yeah, obviously the experience was really different for me because I'm like, I'm actually in the running for something and I actually have a chance to represent not only our team, but my gender category or lack thereof, I would say. (laughs) And um, that is why I joined the team is I wanted to be able to represent the club as a person who I felt I didn't see a lot. I joined because I wanted to be that person, to be the person running in an official singlet while also being chubby and like at the back of the pack and like not at all, you know, looking like or having the results of a lot of like the elite team members. And I'm excited for other possibilities where we get to be more open about all the different kinds of people who run, you know, people who are disabled or fat or neurodivergent or anything like that. And you know, no matter how fast you are or how experienced you are. I, I basically have never met a runner who is not excited to have another person next to them running the same race. So how did it feel when they called your name for first place? I was not there. <laughs> so, you know, I finished in like 40 minutes, which is by no means a fast 5K time. And because I had no idea I was the only person in my category, I just left. <laughs> I had never needed to stay for an award ceremony. I'd never been at all in the running for that before. So it never even occurred to me to stay. And I didn't find out till two days later that I had like one for my category and won a prize and everything. 
And it was crazy. I had no idea. (laughs) Wow. What was it like to win? What was that feeling like? I mean, definitely like mixed feelings. Like obviously, like who doesn't love winning? It was it was really fun to be like, wow, I got a trophy and a prize and everything. That's new for me. But, you know, everyone's like, wow, you came in first in your category. And I had to tell all of them, I also came in last in my category. (laughs) I was the only person in it. And, you know, that that was kind of disappointing, to be honest. I was really excited to see what that turnout looked like and to, you know, have a chance to to see who else was on the roster. Like maybe we could connect, maybe we could talk, maybe we could get excited about doing other runs. And so when it finally got uploaded and I saw I was the only one, I was like, oh, uh, yay for me, I guess. <laughs> but that's not, you know, that's not what I wanted from the experience. I saw you wrote about your win in the Fort Collins, Colorado. What do you want people to know about your experience? I mean, I've definitely gotten some follow-up questions because it's gotten way more publicity than I thought it would. But like non-binary is not another gender. It is just an umbrella term. It is for people who don't want or feel like they fit into either man or woman. And so it's a super broad category. And there are so many options for the people who might fall under it. And this is a really cool new opportunity to show how inclusive running can be and how many great opportunities there are and that running is about being excited for the people who are in your race with you and being excited about what they achieve and supporting each other. I mean, I love running as a sport. And so obviously I'm thrilled that running's kind of loving me back at this point with these new options. Steph Campbell is the first non-binary winner of the Firecracker 5K. Steph, thank you so much for speaking with me today. You're so welcome. For decades, the Colorado River filled Glen Canyon to the brim. That's where Lake Powell is, the second largest reservoir in the country. But climate change and overuse are causing the reservoir to decline to a new record low, leaving the water supply for tens of millions in the southwest uncertain. To show us what Lake Powell looks like at this historic moment, KUNC's Luke Runyon took a boat trip with longtime river runners. Mike DeHoff steers his small metal motorboat down what you could argue is the weirdest stretch of the Colorado River. The water is supercharged with sediment and roiling, the same color as a latte. I think that we'll see a place where the river's no longer, the current is no longer moving. This is the delta of Lake Powell, the place where the flowing Colorado River meets the Stillwater Reservoir. Gnarled spires of clay rise up out of the river channel. DeHoff calls these mudbergs, like icebergs, but made of mud. They're formations created by a river that hasn't flowed in this reach for more than 50 years. The mudbergs that we'll see defining and um, changing the river corridor, they change day to day, month to month. That's Terry incognito for me. Lake Powell usually conjures images of wakeboarders and houseboats, not mud rapids. Its low level is terrifying to water managers, but DeHoff and other longtime river guides and environmentalists see this moment as hopeful, not catastrophic. When the reservoir was full, where we're boating now would have been deep underwater, a muddy mess of river sediment. With the reservoir at a historic low, the lake bottom is exposed and the river is carving through it, creating a bizarro world where everything you see is made of mud. This is like a river on an acid trip right now. 
Dehoff has spent decades running raft trips down Cataract Canyon, the area just upstream of Lake Powell known for its whitewater rapids. For the last five years, with a few partners, he's run a project called Returning Rapids, an attempt to document the change happening here. We set up camp on a sandy beach nestled inside the mud canyon. Dehoff takes a seat in a fold-up chair with Pete Lefebvre, a longtime river guide. The two work together on the project. Early on, Lefebvre says they found that asking one simple question, where can we go rafting, often led to 20 more about sediment, water supply, hydropower production, and the future of recreation here. If we just didn't even expect to be studying this area the way that we are right now. Yeah. Uh, just because of how fast the river is moving downstream and the lake is dropping. The federal government has recently pulled emergency levers to prop up Lake Powell. Without enough snow in the Rocky Mountains and downstream demands for water going unchecked, Lefebvre says it feels like the whole Colorado River Basin is at a breaking point. I think that we don't, as a species, react until it's like, oh man, we need to do something. And we're getting to the point where people are saying, man, we need to do something. The next day, we motor into Lake Powell and veer up into one of its many side canyons for a hike. We splash through a flowing creek full of tadpoles, run our hands over towering willows. Oh man, that smell, the willows, smells so alive. Eric Balkin runs the Glen Canyon Institute, which advocates draining Lake Powell and moving what's left of its waters downstream. He points out a high water mark from the reservoir stained on the red rock 100 feet above our heads. There are a lot of big changes coming to the Colorado River, and this is one that's a good change. You know, to see this canyon come back is really special. Some environmental groups want to see the dam decommissioned and the canyon behind it restored. Balkin says this current moment of reckoning on the river, where users are collectively trying to figure out how to use less, should be seen as an opportunity. Now we're being a, given a chance to rethink this place. And the reason why it was a mistake was because it had so much value beyond a storage tank. And with the reservoir on the decline, Balkin says some of those values are a lot easier to see, smell, and feel. I'm Luke Runyon, near Bullfrog, Utah. This story is part of ongoing coverage of the Colorado River, produced by KUNC and supported by the Walton Family Foundation. Last fall, Colorado farmers planted more than 2 million acres of winter wheat for the 2022 harvest. But persistent drought is hurting Colorado's crop. And as KUNC's Ray Solomon reports, a small native bug has found a new home for its larvae in that wheat. And that has become a huge problem for local growers. I just have to ask, is that wheat on the dishes and glasses? Mm -hmm. Yep. One glance around the Northrop dining room will clue you in to the family business. The table centerpiece, a vase of wheat stems. And the china set on the shelf has a wheat stock pattern, a family heirloom. They were my great-grandmas, so at least three, three generations. Nate Northrop is now the fourth generation growing winter wheat on about 3,000 dry acres in New Reamer, Colorado. 
Dryland farming has never been easy, but since 2010, Northrop's been facing a challenge that would have baffled his predecessors, the wheat stem sawfly. It's a pest that topples wheat at the base, flattening fields, usually just before the harvest. It used to be just a few swaths around the edges, pretty bad, and then the next year following, it would just be entire fields, like just laying on the ground. I mean, it's devastating. But a field leveled by sawfly also devastates the next year's harvest. For dryland farmers like Northrop, what's almost as important as the wheat crop itself is the crop residue. That's the stubble left over after harvest. Residue prevents soil erosion, a major concern on these windswept plains. It also keeps the snow settled in place during the winter, locking in precious moisture. Out here with limited rainfall, the wheat residue is really vital. According to Colorado Wheat, a local industry group, sawfly infested nearly 1 million acres on Colorado's eastern plains last year, causing more than $31 million in damage. Numbers from the 2022 harvest are still trickling in, but with wheat prices surging, the group expects that number to rise to $41 million, all thanks to the wheat stem sawfly. Contrary to the name, it's not a fly, it's actually a wasp. Dr. Erica Pierce studies wheat stem sawfly at Colorado State University. She says the pest isn't new to Colorado, and it hasn't always been a pest. It's been at home on the Eastern Plains since long before Nate Northrup's great-grandfather ever picked up a hoe. It was initially discovered in non-cultivated grasses, so the grasses on the side of the road, in 1874 in Colorado. It only became a pest of winter wheat in Colorado in 2010. That's because of a change in the sawfly life cycle. The insects started emerging earlier and earlier in the spring until eventually the sawfly synced up with winter wheat. The only way that we can solve this problem right now is new varieties that are resistant. Eston Mason is lead wheat breeder at Colorado State University. He says pesticides don't work on sawfly. The best defense is better wheat genetics, specifically better stems. Traditional wheat stems are hollow, like a straw. Mason and his team have been developing new strains with solid and semi-solid stems that are stronger and denser. Instead of a flimsy drinking straw, think sturdy lollipop stick. The sawfly can still lay an egg in there, but that developing larva kind of suffocates and just dies, basically. The downside to the new varieties is that more material in the stem means less material for the grain. Solid stem varieties can't match the yield of traditional wheat, but... At the end of the season, this wheat would be standing in the field, whereas this one would be, would be falling over. And that wheat standing in the field makes all the difference to Nate Northrup. After years of increasing sawfly damage, he started experimenting with solid stem varieties a few years ago. Like this field of feathery golden wheat bobbing in the wind. He says it looks encouraging, but still expects a lackluster yield. I mean, we've had phenomenal years and we've had pretty bleak, pretty tough years. I guess you take the good with the bad and the, the bad years make you appreciate the good. Northrop knows it won't be a phenomenal year for the crop. But with the solid stem wheat, things are looking good for a strong crop residue when the harvest wraps up. And that means he'll have a shot at a better season next year. Ray Solomon, KUNC. A few years ago, as anti-immigrant rhetoric was rising across much of the country, the community of Aurora decided to go the other way. 
Officials there decided to do whatever they could to attract new immigrants to the city, and they went a step further. They began looking for ways to support immigrants once they got there. Our city leaders at the time, they realized that in the last 20 years, uh, we have a new face of the city. The effort began in 2015. Now we want to know, is it working and what's been the result? KUNC reporter Stephanie Daniel has been talking with immigrants about their experiences in Aurora, and she's been looking at what kinds of support community leaders put in place. And it's all in the second season of her podcast, The Colorado Dream. That podcast launches today. KUNC's Christina Shockley spoke to Stephanie to learn more. Has this been an ongoing effort in Aurora to attract and welcome more immigrants and supporting those who already live in the city? Yes. That voice we heard in the introduction is Ricardo Gambetta, an immigrant from Peru, who was tapped to lead a new city office that focuses on international and immigrant affairs. Aurora then created an immigrant integration plan in 2015. It lasted three years, and after input from immigrant and refugee communities and other stakeholders, the city launched a more ambitious 10-year plan in 2020. It makes sense for Aurora to have an immigrant integration plan. The city is one of the most diverse in the state, and about one in five residents is foreign-born. But it's important to acknowledge that local leaders also have the bottom line in mind. They are trying to create economic success for immigrants, which in turn bolsters the city's economy, too. Do we know if the program meant to help Aurora's immigrants get comfortable is working? This is a complicated question and one I explore in the podcast. Aurora already had a sizable immigrant population before launching the integration plan. In fact, that's why the plan was created to streamline services provided by the city and other organizations to help these residents access things like housing, education, and health care. But from my reporting, I learned that some immigrants are falling through the cracks and not getting the help they need. Data shows that the immigrant population is on the rise statewide and in Aurora, and one of the fastest-growing groups are Black immigrants. In fact, that population is growing faster in Colorado than any other state in the U.S., So your series focuses on Black immigrants from Africa. We don't hear their voices in the media very often. One remarkable woman we meet is Salwa Mortada Bamba. I would sit on the beach and just daydream again about coming to America. Salwa's story is really interesting. She's from Liberia and endured the country's brutal civil war before immigrating to the U.S. in 1998 to go to school and become a doctor. She moved to Aurora because she had an uncle living there. But living in the U.S. was harder than she imagined. I had all these goals that I would write in my book. I would get a job. I would start school right away. But it didn't happen that way. You spent a lot of time with Salwa. In the podcast, we learn about her journey and what happens to her in America. It's something like out of a movie. Her story does at times sound like the American dream, but that is a complicated idea. And that is something that you explore in the series. Yes, the American dream is definitely complicated, and it means different things to different people. Another critical issue that came out of my reporting was the relationship between Black immigrants and African Americans. 
I spent quite a bit of time talking to people about this, including Papadia, an immigrant from Senegal. He lives in Aurora and founded the African Leadership Group, which is working to bring these groups together. There's a tension between the African immigrant and the black community. Why? Because of misconception and assumption from both parts. KUNC's newest season of the Colorado Dream podcast is called Newcomers Welcome. It launches today with new episodes on Fridays. You can also hear it on the air in the afternoons on KUNC's All Things Considered. Stephanie Daniel is the reporter and host. Thank you so much for sharing these stories, Stephanie. Thanks for having me. That's all for today on Colorado Edition. You can catch the Colorado Edition podcast every Friday, so please hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. Our theme music is composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. Other music in the show by Blue Dot Sessions. I'm Jocelyn Mesa Miranda. Thank you for spending some time with KUNC's Colorado Edition. See you next week. <laughs>